But hey, it's John Ann Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing great, Mrs. B and I still enjoying the lovely winter weather here in Clearwater, Florida, slash Dunedin. Uh, going to make a great day of it. It's our daughter-in-law's birthday today, so we're going to connect with them later on this evening, watch a little sunset on the beach, have a cocktail or two, and just enjoy the day. Things are good, brother. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm excited about tonight. It's the college football championship. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this one. It's uh, the first time I've been able to watch in a long time where I don't have an emotional investment. It's just going to be a game. Of course, it's LSU. It's Clemson. Do you have a prediction? I do not follow. I do not follow <laughs> football. No, I don't. I don't follow college football. So I'm, I'm, my my guess is going to be simply a guess and a random pick. But based on everything that I've read about LSU and the little bit I've watched of LSU, including their game against your beloved Alabama, I would have to go with LSU. Yeah, it pains me to agree, but, uh, I mean, I wish they could find a way where they could somehow both lose. This is one of those deals where I wish sports was like real wrestling. And I wish like at halftime, one of these teams could just give Alabama the hot tag. That would be great. I just come up with some fucked up finish at the end. You know I mean? Just, you should reach out to, you know, get me and Kevin Sullivan and maybe Ric Flair. And, you know, we can, we can book the finish to this game and figure out a way that both teams lose. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh. The athletic commission could stop it due to blood. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm with it. Well, let's talk about another stupid finish. Of course, we're talking about sold out 1999. We're on the heels of Starcade 98. Goldberg is undefeated no more. We are just, uh, what, a couple weeks past the finger poke of doom. It's January 17th, 1999. So uh, this one goes down in the Charleston Civic Center in Charleston, West Virginia, which I actually went to this past year. The show here is a complete sellout weeks in advance to the tune of 10,833 fans, 10,255 of those paid a $210,000 gate, way less comps than we are used to. Um, it's pretty remarkable to sell out in Charleston, West Virginia. I mean, that is definitely an old WCW building, but it feels like, and it is in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, maybe that's where wrestling does the best. You know, there's, there's been different schools of thought in, in strategies. I should say more than schools of thought, different strategies over, over the years. I was always a firm believer, especially when, you know, I first got to WCW as a talent. And, and then later on when I got into management prior to nitro, okay, we're talking pre nitro, um, that it was always better to go into smaller markets that don't get a lot of big entertainment acts, you know, don't get a lot of rock and roll, don't get a lot of country, don't get a lot of hip hop, don't get a lot of anything. Uh, may not even have a pro sports team, you know, within proximity, because that way, when you come to town, when you, when you, when you come to a local arena that kind of fits that profile, you're the biggest thing that's happened in a while. You know, they've got people that they watch on television every week now coming to their local arena. And it, it worked really, really well. The other strategy, of course, is once you get hot, now this would be post-Nitro, let's say 96, 97, once you become kind of a thing and you cross over into that pop culture phenomenon category, uh, then you can go into big markets and, and do the big houses. But Charleston was one of those in-betweeners in a way. It, it wasn't quite totally remote. 
it did get some, you know, big national acts that would come through because on the East Coast, it's easy to divert, you know, on tour through a smaller market like Charleston. So they didn't they didn't get a lot of, you know, a lot of big acts, but they got enough. But they were still one of those local markets that just really, really dug their wrestling. And I think culturally, too, you know, wrestling has always been very popular in the southeast, very popular in the extreme northeast, you know, popular in certain parts of the Midwest. The the West Coast can tend to be kind of, uh, or at least in the past, I don't know what it's like now. Obviously, I haven't been tracking it now. But in the past, going, you know, we're talking about the 90s now, um, the West Coast was kind of uh, hot and cold, depending on how hot or cold the business was. So, yeah, Charleston was a great market for us, and I'm glad we played it. All right, let's keep it moving here. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of where we are in storyline. Uh, we have just seen Goldberg lose the streak and the world title to Kevin Nash. We also saw Ric Flair become the president of WCW. The finger poke of doom happens a week later. The infamous uh, moment where Kevin Nash essentially lays down for Hulk Hogan and they put back together the NWO with the idea being this is going to create a new monster for Goldberg to compete with. Famously, of course, Tony Schiavone gives the, uh, the, the viewers at home a heads up that Cactus Jack, who used to wrestle here, is going to become the world champion on the other channel. Huh? That'll put some butts in the seats. As we know, like, 600,000 people change their channel right then. Uh, and the, <laughs> the finger poke of doom match got 4.6, the rerun or the taped version of the mankind rock match got 5.9. So it actually backfired a little bit, but that didn't keep WCW's momentum from continuing. I mean, as we just mentioned, this is a sellout and, and I myself have often said, oh, this was the. This was the end. Well, it may have been the beginning of the end, but there's still a ton of momentum here as we're covering here. This is sold out ahead of time. And you guys are routinely setting either attendance or gate or both records. Um, even the finger poke of doom There's more than 40,000 people in the arena. 37,000 of those are paying customers. The gate is nearly a million bucks, $940,000. And I read not too long ago, Eric, that, you know, you guys had had a few big gates like this, especially when you were in the Georgia dome and you were annoyed. I think that of the three times you ran it, you never broke the million dollar mark. You all, you got to where there was a nine in front, but you could never get to seven figures. Was that a goal of yours or is that someone just sort of freestyling a guess in the dirt sheets? No, that was a freestyle. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to deny, I would have loved to hit that million dollar mark, but I, I didn't fixate on that. It wasn't, you know, I didn't have a big bill, you know, placard up in my office with $1 million on it or anything like that. But it was certainly something that, you know, we strove for, but I was by no means frustrated with $900,000 houses. No, I mean, listen, it's nice to have a goal, but I mean, goodness gracious, this is a company that when you took it over, I mean, some other gates, you know, they weren't even five figures, you know, we had eight and $9,000 gates and now, you know, we've got 900 and something thousand. It's really remarkable. Let's take a look at where we are sort of year over year, uh, because 99 is definitely going to be a different style year for WCW than what they've experienced the, the prior two or three years. Your average attendance in January of 98, 8,203 fans, your average attendance in January of 99, 8,661 fans. So we're up 5.6%, but guess what else is up the gate, your average gate in January of 98, is 157 grand. 
in January of 99, it's 196 grand. So we're up 25%. You've got to assume the way to get there is to increase the price of your tickets. How did you guys, or how often did you guys meet about pricing strategies for ticketing? It was probably something that, you know, ended up on the table, uh, at least twice a year. And that was really something that, um, Zane Bresloff for the most part, I, I followed his lead on that. Uh, I didn't interfere too much with Zane. He was really good at what he did. He understood the market. He had his finger on the pulse and he knew what the, what the audience would bear. Uh, it's tempting when you start really rocking and rolling to, to raise the prices and I don't want to say gouge people, but you know, maximize your opportunity. But I always believed, and I think so did Zane, uh, and maybe the reason I believed it is because Zane did, and I kind of followed his lead. But you know, wrestling is a family uh, event. The, the strength in in wrestling, and over the years, has been. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack for just a minute. You know, people outside of the wrestling business for the last 30 years that I've been in it. And as you know, and I think most of our listeners know, I've also been active in the non-wrestling world of entertainment, meaning traditional television and movies and things. So I, in over the especially over the last 15 years, I've had a lot of conversations with network executives and buyers and creative types who really don't understand why wrestling works. You know, they watch it, they read about it, you know, they read the headlines in variety, they see that, you know, WWE is a $5 billion market cap company or whatever it may be. They see the ratings each and every week and they just can't figure it out. Because in in some ways, you know, professional wrestling, sports entertainment, whether it's WWE, AEW, you know, Ring of Honor, whatever it is, it's pretty basic. It's good guys, bad guys, theoretically, although that 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 theory that that formula is becoming more and more diluted over time. But it's essentially, you know, good guys, bad guys, good girls, bad girls, um, people with, you know, issues in a orchestrated or choreographed uh, fight or battle. It's not really brain. It's not brain surgery at all. Now, there's I think when it's done well, which, you know happens once in a while but when it's done really really well and there's great psychology and great storytelling behind you know two or more really great characters that the audience is behind the 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 psychology in some of the, the best wrestling stories that we can think of is really fairly complex in, in terms of its structure but to people who don't really watch wrestling enough to see it when that happens. It just looks like a very silly form of entertainment. And it, when I was asked, oftentimes people would pick my brain and go, why does this stuff work? How do they keep doing it? And the answer, I think, in part, is that um, unlike other forms of entertainment that can be hot at any one time for a period of time, you know, wrestling is is one of the few television properties that actually comes to your local arena, whether it be Charleston, West Virginia, in this case, or Toledo, Ohio, or Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You know, it, it's it, it's the type of entertainment where if you're in your local market, let's again, let's talk about Charleston, West Virginia. 
these people don't get to see a lot of high profile celebrities, movie stars, television stars, that type of thing, musicians for the most part. But yet here you've got, you know, WCW or WWE or whomever, AEW coming. These are people that they watch on television. Now they're coming to your local market. And there's something that happens that's, I think, really unique to professional wrestling in that the audience builds a different type of relationship with the characters that they follow on TV in the arena when they see him live. It's one thing, you know, you you have your heroes, you have your people that you, you know, your villains, if you will, and you have that kind of, you know, long distance relationship with them, if you will. But when they come to your arena, it becomes much more intimate. And, you know, you, you, you can see them three or four feet away. You feel like you know them differently. And you invest in those characters differently because they came to your local market. And you had a chance to see them live. So that when that tour leaves, when they leave town the next day, you are even more excited to see the people on television that you saw in person just a few days ago. And I think that's one of the reasons that that wrestling works as well as it does for as long as it has since the beginning of television time because of that relationship that you build with the audience when you're there live. What the fuck was the question? I can't even remember now. I love you for that. Well, listen, thanks for taking us down the rabbit hole. That was all good stuff. But the idea was about, you know, price it, pricing tickets. and the, Oh, and the oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Strategies. I'm sorry, brother. So going back again to Zane's philosophy, because he, he really believed that the strength in television was to have that relationship with that local audience. He really believed that keeping that price point down to the point where when you came to a Charleston or Dubuque or Cedar Rapids, and especially, you know, some of the lower, you know, the economically more depressed areas, and certainly Charleston was one at the time. Um, if you can keep your price points down to the point where a family of four can attend instead of maybe just the husband or boyfriend or whatever, or, you know, maybe it brings a buddy, but if you can get a family of four or five, something that's affordable that the family can, you know, an entire family can afford to do together, you're building a bigger, broader relationship for a longer period of time. And that was Zane's philosophy. That's, and I believed in it, uh, and, and followed it. So that's why when you ask, you know, how, how often did we adjust prices? Maybe once or twice a year, but we were very, very careful about it and did it in very small increments. Is there pricing psychology to wrestling tickets? I know this sounds funny, but you know, we've seen, and a lot of our listeners know that, you know, a lot of people offer things like, uh, it's only 1999 for years and years. People wanted to keep things just under the round mark. I mean, even in mortgages, you know, in the last five or 10 years, instead of being just on the eighth, they've started to offer instead of say 5%, you could get 4.99 with the idea being that people get really excited about having something under five. And that certainly exists in, you know, everything's a dollar or the 99 cent menu at the drive through or whatever it is, there is a pricing psychology there. And maybe two decades ago, Walmart adopted one saying that, you know, everyone's favorite number is seven. And now almost everything in a big box retailer like Walmart ends with seven. So something will be 97 cents, or if they really want to sell it to you, it'll be 77 cents. And does that sort of stuff play a factor in pricing wrestling tickets or is it, Hey, they were $38 last time. Let's see if we can get to 39. Yeah. I don't think we ever had discussions about, you know, fine tuning a price point to be more marketable across the boards in general. I mean, we, we would look at percentages you know, can we raise a ticket price 5% or 7% or whatever that ended up being? 
but we never we never fixated like Walmart did or even in the mortgage business. We never fixated on the uh, psychology of the price point. Right. It was just the affordability of it. What was in the real world? What was affordable in a market like West Virginia? You, I don't know what the average income was in 1999. I'm guessing it might have been 40, 35, 40 thousand dollars a year in that particular market. That's taking a guess. Um, what can, you know, if, if you've got a, a family of four, a husband and wife, what can they afford? Can they afford a $20 ticket or do we need to keep it like at $18, $16? You know, we, we looked at it that way, but we never got into the psychology of it where we're trying to fudge the numbers to the point where we wanted it to end in 99, you know, nine ninety nine for a ticket versus 10 bucks for a ticket. We never got into that. Let's talk about it too, from a, from a budgetary thing uh, on your end. You've got your budgets for the year and you know, here's what I can spend on talent and here's what I can spend on promotion or whatever those sort of departments or categories might be. But did you year over year or quarter over quarter or month over month, would you adjust what you thought your gate projections would be? I mean, cause certainly you may have known back then in January, what venues will be running in December. But by and large in my head, it's just a number of dates, a rough number of tickets, and then a rough aggregate that would show you an average gate is that close or how did you guys really do it are you talking about projecting our budget or yeah or? i mean because because pricing is obviously going to be a piece of that like you you would say well if the if, if we're running on on average a ten thousand seat arena uh you know after we do some production kills we think we'll wind up with this many seats we can actually sell at these sort of four price points of ringside and maybe lower level and mid and upper deck here's what we think a gate projection would look like for a TV show versus a house show versus a pay-per-view. And then you guys would sort of work backwards to figure out what those projections are. And then that becomes something that you could then spend money against on a budget, right? Uh, Yes and no. You know, I think the approach was probably more, let's say for example, we would start working on our budgets. Let's say for 1999, uh, we were working on our 1999 budgets, probably starting in around July of 98, right? Because you got to submit, you know, your budget requests and it has to be approved by, you know, the board, uh, at, at uh, Turner. Uh, so we would start and everybody, not just WCW, but across the Turner companies, you would start putting your budget together for the, for the following year about midway through, uh, the previous one. And what we would do is kind of look historically. Okay. We would look back and say, okay, what have we been doing for the last 12 months? Because we knew, for example, we would make a decision. Are we going to increase the number of house shows? Are we going to decrease the number of house shows? Are we going to leave them the same? If the answer is we're going to leave them the same, we already had a pretty, pretty good idea of what we had done in the previous 12 months. And then based on current trends, we would project a percentage increase in ticket sales or if we decided we were going to adjust the ticket prices, we would project those ticket sales, maybe assume an increase of 10% or 15% across the board. And then if we decided to increase ticket prices, we would adjust the, the revenue based on the additional ticket sales based on the previous 12 months and the price increase. So we didn't look at individuals markets, if you will, and we didn't break each one of the individual markets down, but we kind of looked at, okay, we're going to do 150 house shows. You know, in 1998, we averaged, and I'm obviously pulling numbers out of my hat, 
we averaged, you know, let's say we averaged one hundred and forty five thousand dollars across the board on house shows. We're going to do the same number uh, and we're going to assume a 10 percent increase in ticket sales. Not in ticket prices, but in ticket sales, or 15, or 20, or whatever the historical data we had, uh, whichever way that that would take us. Same thing with the pay-per-views. Last year, you know, we, we would look in at 98, we would look back, okay, so for the last 12 months, we've been generating $4 million a month in pay-per-view. Let's in, and, and it looks like that's been trending up at a rate of 20%, you know, annually. So let's we're going to do the same number of pay-per-views. Let's just project an additional 20% based on history or the previous 12 months. So that that's kind of the way we develop budgets. Let's keep it moving here and talk about how your house show business was doing. In January of 98, you're selling out 35% of the shows. In January of 99, you're selling out 14.3% of the shows. So that could sound alarming, but remember, your average gate is up. So it probably just means you're running some bigger arenas this go around than maybe you were at the beginning of 98, your average cable rating. Well, that's also up in January of 98, you're averaging a 4.48 and now we're at a 4.95. So ratings are up 10 and a half percent. And man, would people be high five? if they got a 4.95 today, uh, let's talk a little bit about Bret Hart Meltzer would report that he's probably going to be off television until mid February. He would write his groin injury is just about healed, but now they have no plans for him. He had shot an angle on December 28th in Baltimore where he was going to kidnap Kimberly, but the angle was taken from him and given to Steiner. That just seems, I can't imagine Bret Hart kidnapping someone. No, I, I don't know where that came from. I really, well, I do know where it came from, but I can't even imagine uh, unless there's some really good hallucinogenics involved, I can't imagine how that thought formulated inside of whoever wrote its head. And I know who wrote it. I just tired of saying his name. <laughs> uh, speaking of Brett in his December 26 Calgary sun column, Brett responded uh, to those who say the double cross finish was a work between McMahon and Brett. He wrote, And then there are the skeptics, the small percentage of wrestling fans who point to the fact that I was wired for my conversation with McMahon in Montreal and the unprecedented backstage access that the film crew was granted by the WWF as a little too convenient. And they conclude that McMahon and I concocted the whole thing. They are desperately trying to rationalize it so they can go out feeling like a member of the WWF club. Get real. It's simple. The deal to make the documentary was signed while I was still on good terms with McMahon. They were finished filming and I smelled the potential for the double cross in Montreal. So I asked the camera crew to come back out. I was wired for sound the entire year. They tailed me, not just in Montreal before going to that meeting with Vince, they asked me to remove the wire and I said, no, the rest is history. Let's put it in the past. This is something you and I've never really talked about, but there is a contingent of wrestling fans out there. And maybe some even listening to this show who believe and there's even a lot of the boys that I've talked to over the years who believe that the Bret Hart screw job in Montreal was indeed a work. Where do you land on that? I, you know, I think Kevin Nash is, you know, yeah. one of the bigger names that fall into that category of, you know, talent that thinks it's a work. Um, you know, I, here's my, this is, this is my nature. Okay. My nature is to believe people until they give me a reason not to. I, and that's it's not served me all that well throughout my life and my career. 
Um, but it's nonetheless, it's my nature. It's not going to change. And I take it at face value. You know, Brett's, you know, Brett and I have had, you know, we're cool now. We don't bury each other and we're, we're never going to go out and, you know, have to take dinner together or anything like that. But we're also not, you know, waking up in the morning looking for an opportunity to take a shot at each other either. But whatever I may have said in the past about Brett, I've never said that Brett was a liar. I've never believed that Brett is a liar. I believe that Brett believes what he believes. And sometimes it's maybe different than what the rest of us or, or others may think. But that's just a difference of opinion. That's not a lie. I can't imagine Brett lying about this. I just don't think it's in his nature to lie. He he may distort things, you know, in his own mind sometimes. He may interpret things different than maybe somebody else does. I do, you do, whatever. He may have a different outlook on things that, you know, may be inconsistent with my ideas or my outlook on things or whatever, uh, as an example. But... At the end of it all, I just don't believe in my heart that Bret, Her- Bret Hart would lie to, to, to this extent and, 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 and carry it forward. I mean, it's one thing if it was a short-term angle and it was business and there was a, you know, it, there was a reason, you know, it was, it was the final, final two minutes in the third act. No, okay, yeah, but that's the business. That's the wrestling business. This, this isn't that. This is something that still exists today. And. And knowing Brett, the little bit that I did, I, and I won't say I do now because he's probably like the rest of us, he's changed quite a bit in some respects. But, you know, the Bret Hart I knew back then, I just don't think he would have been willing to, to, to do it. it. It took Here's what I do know. Here's what I know for a fact. I know for a fact how much that, that situation really, I'm going to use the word hurt. I don't want you know, people to interpret that as, you know, Brett was overly emotional about it or crying about it or anything, but he was angry about it. And it was a legitimate anger. And it was, it was an anger quite, you know, honestly, I, I after a couple months, I was kind of like, man, you got to let that go. Either find a way to use it and, and turn it around and turn that negative situation into a positive one, or just get beyond it, but don't keep dwelling on it. And he dwelled on it. And I think if it had been a work, he wouldn't have dwelled on it as much as he did. And I say dwell, I mean, he, he wouldn't have held on to the anger and the frustration of it as long as he did. So that that's the reason why I take it at face value. And I believe Brett is just because I just don't think he would have been capable, honestly, of putting himself in that position and lying to his fan base. I just don't believe that. Of course, Kevin Nash being one of the biggest, uh, guys who say, oh, it was a work, uh, Kevin Nash was, was way deep in the work because he's, uh, he's a mover and a shaker here in this era of WCW Wade Keller would write the political alliances behind the scenes have changed in recent months. And that was reflective of on-air comments earlier this week. Kevin Nash and Conan have been inseparable for more than a year. And their on-air chemistry as part of the Wolfpack was based on their real-life friendship behind the scenes. And since Nash is now aligned with Hogan, Conan and Nash have not been getting along. Luger and Elizabeth have sided with Nash, also leaving Conan without, quote, friends in high places. That said, Hogan is trying to play good cop by telling Conan that he will make sure he continues to get a push. 
And Hogan says, since he gets a percentage of the pay-per-view profits, he wants WCW to do well and will push wrestlers who are popular with fans, regardless of political allegiances. If that were truly the case, Bret Hart would be getting a push. Hogan's policy over the years has been to hold back anyone who was a threat to him. Apparently Bret is a threat, but Conan isn't. And the heat between Nash and Conan came through in their on-air comments during Nitro this past week. Now I brought this one to you because you have, I don't know, for the better part of a year said that Wade Keller, he's a guy that you could really get behind and have more faith in than maybe some other journalists over the years that we've covered, but this one, I feel like you're going to take issue with. I, I do, I do. And look back in, you know, the nineties, Wade Keller, I think was probably guilty of presenting his opinions in much the same fashion and tone that, uh, Meltzer did at the time. There was a lot of, uh, opinion reported as fact. There was a lot of speculation reported as fact. I mean, I, even when I was in TNA, there was a, and I don't remember what the incident was or what the subject material was, but I, somewhere online, I read, you know, about my position on an issue within TNA and how I was so opposed to something that everybody else wanted to do. I don't even remember what the issue was, but I remember reading that. Now, this was, what, 2000, probably 12 or 13, so it wasn't all that long ago. Um, but I remember taking, I, I literally went online, and I found the story uh, in Wade's uh, publication, pwtorch.com. I check in with him, by the way. It's one of my go-to places, that, and... Um, uh, PW Insider, the two places that I go to for my news on a regular basis. But um, I actually went to the front page and I pulled it, copied it, pasted it, and I did a, a red line, much like you would to a legal document, and pointed out almost sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph how absurd that reporting was. And I, I sent it off. I think I, I think I may have posted it somewhere. And that was like the last time that I recall seeing Wade, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that Wade stopped reporting the way he was reporting or changed his perception on how he should report because of that. But it was like one of the last, because then I quit reading him. I just quit looking at his stuff and quit paying attention to it, much like I, you know, I gave up on Meltzer a long time ago. I tried, you know, tried to work with him, tried to whatever. But once I realized there's just no fucking hope, they're going to keep doing the stupid shit they do, I just quit. Gave up when I'm on my way. And I, that was like the last time I had, you know, reached out to Wade or read Wade. Uh, now, fast forward, uh, one of the reasons when I say, you know, over the last year that I find Wade and others, Dave Shears, another one, Mike Johnson's another one. Um, one of the reasons that I find them to be credible is because I think they've changed the way they report on wrestling. Now, back in 99, you know, I'll take exception to this. It was bullshit. It was just absolute. That's really like somebody sitting in their house and fantasizing about a soap opera that's going on behind the scenes, but they never get to go behind the scenes to actually do the research or ask the questions or even observe the real dynamics. It's somebody sitting at home and listening to rumors and, and bullshit and, and being fed bullshit by a lot of lower level people or frustrated wrestlers or people who have their own agendas feeding this 
misinformation uh, to a guy like Dave Meltzer or in, in, back in 1999, Wade Keller, and they would run with it. And they would use that misinformation to concoct these really almost like well-scripted storylines that weren't true. Uh, there were there was more there was more of a work going on in dirt sheets than there was going on in the ring, for the most part in in the '90s when people that had, you know, I and I use this, you know, I used to use this, you know, in my discussions about dirt sheets, you know, and a guy like Dave Meltzer, you know, is reporting on a show, and criticizing a show or putting a show over. Well, he wasn't actually there, right? Dave Dave Meltzer would write about you know, the quality of a show or what went on in the show, not because he was there and he observed it himself, but because someone else, one of his readers sent him that information. Well, how accurate is that? How, how do you know if that person's perception of what took place that night was, was real or not? Because they, it was like long distance reporting. They never left their homes. And in this case, Wade Keller was writing about, you know, dynamics and relationships and perceptions of how, how the fuck does, did Wade Keller know what Hulk Hogan was thinking? He didn't. He was taking a guess. And I, as he re- read that back to me, I'm listening to this. I'm going, this is just nonsense. Whoever wrote that should have been, you know, writing for keeping up with the Kardashians because it's just silliness. Uh, Wade Keller would also report this, and this is something that you and I have touched on a little bit here and there, but I don't know that we've hammered the nail enough yet because this would have been fucking huge. Wade would write, it looks like the first NBC special will air on February 14th. And the second NBC special will go head to head with a WWF pay-per-view WrestleMania on March 28th. Some WCW officials have gone tongue in cheek about the coincidence of the NBC specials going up against WrestleMania. The NBA all-star game was scheduled for February 14th, but that was canceled due to the NBA lockout and NBC denied to Vince McMahon that a deal with WCW exists. Apparently the deal has been agreed upon, but not yet signed. And NBC wants to be the first to officially announce the agreement. The former head of Turner entertainment group, Scott Sasa is now the head of NBC's entertainment division, which may explain more than anything why WCW got picked up by NBC. Now, of course we know this doesn't actually happen, but holy shit, how huge would that have been? Yes. You could pay $40 and watch WrestleMania on pay-per-view, or you could flip it over to your broadcast television. NBC has got WCW live with almost like a, a modern Saturday night's main event. This would have been incredible. Yeah, it would. And it's one of, it, it, there's very few things that I get angry about. You know, when I reflect back on, you know, what went on in WCW, I've kind of come to terms with all of it and put it in my rearview mirror. And I try not to let it, you know, I try not to give it any thought because no, it doesn't do me any good. However, when this subject comes up, I find myself still like right now, as you started talking about that, I just realized my back is all of a sudden getting stiff. My fists are clenching just a little bit. My throat's getting a little tight. I'm getting to that point where I feel like I need to fucking punch somebody. Um, This one still pisses me off. We had at a time, and again, let's context is king, right? WWE was breathing down our back. I mean, they had, you know, they went from being, you know, the kiddie show and the goofy cartoon animated, you know, doink the clown kind of nonsense to the attitude era, Mike Tyson, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Mr. McMahon. They kind of, they upped their game. They, they adapted to 
adapted to, I should say, the the new formula that Nitro and the NWO in specific had created. They not only adapted to it, they started to perfect it, and they were doing it better than we were doing it. And they were they meaning WWE were willing to take bigger, uh, more frequent and bigger risks. In, in terms of what they presented, you know, Mae Young giving birth to a hand, sexual chocolate, all that kind of crazy shit that they were doing to to get back on their feet again and, and recapture the audience that Nitro had, had dominated from them for so long. So we were struggling, and I knew we were in trouble, and I could see the freight train coming up behind us. So it was no longer, yeah, they beat us this week, or boy, but the ratings are starting to come up a little bit. They were They were coming on strong. And I knew we needed something, not just creatively, but strategically. We needed something big to kind of shift the momentum. And it's not an angle, and it's not going to be a new character, and it's not going to be a new set, and it's not going to be all of the the simple things. By simple, I don't mean to minimize them because they're all complicated and expensive things when you want to create a new set or do something you know big. But we needed something strategically that would completely changed the landscape and the NBC opportunity was one of them. I mean, it was the biggest one of them. The the opportunity came to me through my relationship with, it didn't really have anything to do with Scott Sassa, by the way. Uh, Although that certainly made it a little bit easier, but it didn't have anything to do with Scott. The opportunity came to me, frankly, through a gentleman by the name of Gary, Gary Considine, who I'm still friends with to this day. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'm going out to see next week or the week after in L.A. Uh, still an active television producer, but we developed a really great relationship. He, Gary was the executive producer of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and had been at NBC for a long time. And I had met several other uh, key executives at NBC through Gary and had developed a pretty good relationship with them. So when the NBA strike occurred, Gary reached out to me from NBC and said, hey, do you think you can put something together for February 14th? And jumped on it immediately, uh, put together a couple, you know, one really big idea uh, that we knew would get numbers for NBC and for WCW is we were going to have, um, instead of a, a wrestling wedding, we were going to have the first ever wrestling divorce between Carmen Electra and Dennis Rodman. Oh, because they were getting divorced at the time, and they, you know, they were still, they were, yeah, we still had a good working relationship with with everybody, and they they still got along as friends, and everybody was game. Dennis was game, Carmen was game, everybody was game. So we were going to have a a, a WCW divorce, live divorce uh, on on national television. <laughs> it, yeah, right. Forward thinking. <laughs> And had everything lined up, everybody was on board, the creative was, you know, laid out, pitched it to NBC, they loved it. I had to get permission from Turner. Now, keep in mind, and people get so, I get sick of myself when I talk about the AOL Time Warner thing, because I understand how listeners can go, oh, he's just pissing and moaning and blaming it on somebody else, blah, 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 blah. I get it. I would probably, if if I hadn't lived it, I would probably be doing and thinking the same thing. However... At this point, had this opportunity, let's put it this way, had this opportunity come my way to to do an NBC special in 97, I would not have even had to pick up the phone and ask permission. I wouldn't have had to call Ted. I wouldn't have had to call Harvey Schiller. I wouldn't have had to call, you know, Brad Siegel. I wouldn't have had to call anybody. 
I would have just agreed to do it and I went, I would have gone and done it. Just like Hulk Hogan and I went on the NBC show and shot a little stunt. It would have been the same thing. Only this stunt would have been a two-hour stunt <laughs> instead of a, a seven-minute stunt on national television. But in the era at this point, 99, it was all about Time Warner with AOL coming down the pipe. And you had to approve – you had to get everything approved by a committee who was created to – put together a committee that was designed to an, analyze the findings of a committee and then reform another committee to finally make a decision. That was kind of like the process of doing business in, in at Turner Broadcasting for me about this time. So, of course, you know, being the good corporate citizen that I tried to be um, some of the time, I took the opportunity, ran it up the flagpole, and got shot down. Got shot down. There, there were people, and I'm not going to name names. Go read the book, you know, um, Nitro, uh, the incredible rise and the dramatic fall, or whatever, whatever the title was. Um, our buddy Guy did a great job of really, really framing the kind of corporate situation around '99, 2000 at Turner Broadcasting. But I did the right thing. I ran it up the flagpole and. The head of ad sales shot it down, said it was a bad idea to have WCW on NBC. I, I mean, so even as I say that, I have a hard time saying it because I'm still having a hard time believing that anybody could have thought that. It was such a profoundly stupid decision to, to take that opportunity and put a bullet in it because they were afraid of the perception of WCW being on uh, on NBC, Can, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying the words, but I'm shaking my head like, like in disbelief as I'm saying them. It's it's still just dumbfounds me. But yeah, it's true. It got killed, not by NBC, which was reported, I think, in a lot of different places. Yeah, NBC didn't kill it. Turner killed it. Let's talk about this. I'm glad you you said that because Wade would write. NBC has canceled the scheduled WCW primetime specials because of the resolution of the NBA lockout. Although Eric Bischoff didn't specify to the wrestlers that the deal hinged on the NBA season being canceled. Apparently that was indeed part of the deal. As it now stands, WCW may air those specials head to head with WWF's February and March pay-per-view specials. But if so, it would be on TNT instead of NBC. NBC still plans to air WCW specials, but not on the previously scheduled dates. And there is no word yet on the timetable for the eventual uh, schedules. So maybe we're, we're sort of uh, splitting hairs here, but do you remember part of this discussion being born out of NBC potentially losing their NBA programming and they needed something else to target that same demo? Well, look, the opportunity you know, to, to do the February 14th show was certainly born out of the fact that the NBA strike kind of caught NBC flat-footed and they had a hole in their programming schedule. So th that part of it is true. The rest of it is speculation and, and nonsense. Once there was no other discussion about other specials with NBC, first and foremost. So that whole part of that reporting is simply sewage. That's It's just not true. There was no other discussions about other future programming on NBC. There were certainly no discussions about where it was going to air, whether it was on NBC or TNT. That is all fabricated. It was either fabricated or somebody was feeding Wade information that was so ridiculously inaccurate and made up 
It was all fiction, and he chose to report it without following up on it. I don't know. I, I don't know what was going through his mind when he wrote it. All I know is that none of it was true. The uh, February 14th was an opportunity. Had, had Turner approved it, we would have started advertising it, promoting it, and we would have been locked in. The only reason that that, that opportunity went away is because Turner didn't want to take advantage of it. They refused to let me do it. Had nothing to do with the NBA schedule, had nothing to do with the strike being settled because we would have had that block. It would have been a commitment. We would have been there, um, that two-hour block. So I don't know you know, where Wade was getting his information from or if he was just simply you know, guessing and kind of you know, taking a dot here and a dot here and a dot here and then connecting those dots and coming up with his own 3D illustration. I don't know, but I do know that none of it was true. We had one opportunity on February 14th. When Turner killed that, there was no discussion about doing anything else with NBC. We couldn't. Turner had just told me. I mean, it's so simple, and there's so much common sense to it. If Turner had made the decision that they didn't want to do the NBC special because they felt that it was the wrong decision to align a Turner Time Warner product with NBC, that was the reason. That was the only reason. They didn't want to provide a a Turner Time Warner asset to NBC. Simple. It was it was jail food mentality. You're not getting any of ours. This is ours. You can't have it. That's the mentality. And once that decision was made, there was absolutely no discussion. And I think anybody that thought about it for just a second would understand that there wouldn't be any discussion about doing anything else with NBC in the future because the decision had been made by the brain trust at, at, at Turner at that time um, that we didn't want to share our assets with someone like NBC. Hypothetically, hypothetically, when it's just all in the planning stages, would you have tried to do something head to head with WrestleMania on NBC? Um, I mean, it is hypothetical. This is really the first time, um, I mean, how fucking badass is that? It, I'm guessing even then, I mean, cause WrestleMania, obviously, but even back in 99, you know, WrestleMania, <laughs> it would have been a weird, it would have been a, it would have been a ballsy decision. I probably would have done it of course. just, just because the risk would have been worth the potential reward. But if nothing else, the state, even if we would have gotten trounced, right, even if it would not have had any adverse impact on our on our competition, it would have made a hell of a statement and it would have furthered the. I guess the core message of Nitro is, you know, we've got balls and you never know what we're going to do next and we're going to keep pushing the envelope. And by this time in 1999, we had lost a lot of that momentum. We had lost a lot of that mes messaging. We were kind of running out of crazy shit to do that kind of con continued to break the mold and to raise the bar in terms of delivering, you know, kind of outrageous entertainment that no one would expect to see in wrestling. Uh, we, we kind of, we were running out of steam. You know, we couldn't go as far because by this time in 1999, again, you know, the, the, Time Warner influence on all of Turner Broadcasting, in particular WCW, was was really being felt. You know, we had Terry Tingle. <laughs> I still laugh every time I say her name. T 
Terry Tingle of Standards and Practices was really drilling down hard on us in terms of the type of content that we could do, which made the whole you know, 18 to 34 year old demo that we had done such a fantastic job of building up to this point, we were softening the product. We were taking, we were filing the edges off, you know, and making it a little safer and a little more comfortable and a little easier to handle for family viewing. Well, that's great, except for our core audience wasn't into family viewing. We were more 18 to 34, 18 to 39 year old male who was expecting that you know, NWO-esque, you know, Attitude Era-esque type of presentation. And we were being told to, you know, file the edges off, make it a little safer. And we needed something. But no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling because I get I get off. Of, I go off on a tangent when I get angry. And this one still makes me angry. It would have been a great opportunity. It would have been unbelievable. You know, I mean, it was such a big deal when the WWE got the Fox deal and you know, now that's just a regular thing and maybe it does feel like it's a little less special, but you know, in this era, when people thought of, you know, primetime TV and, you know, big broadcast television and wrestling, they thought of, you know, the main event or WCW or WWF's Saturday night's main event, you thought of Hogan and Andre and big shit. And, and this would have been huge, especially in a time when it felt like WCW was maybe losing a little bit of the momentum and some of the back and forth was going more towards the WWF's direction. Maybe this could have pulled WCW's nose up a little bit. Uh, let's keep it going here. We get a report from, uh, Wade Keller that Ric Flair is getting a lot of press in North Carolina because he's considering running. <laughs> he, wants, <laughs> he wants to be the governor. Can't believe this is a real sentence. Uh, in the January 4th independent tribune columnist, Scott Jenkins wrote predictions for 99 quote, Jesse Ventura's success in Minnesota will inspire other professional wrestlers to throw their tights into the political ring. Nature boy, Ric Flair will make a bid for the governorship of North Carolina. And in 2000, he will win naming the other four horsemen as Lieutenant governor, attorney general, and secretary of state. This is silly, but there, there were actually like campaign buttons and bumper stickers and you know, this became sort of tongue in cheek. Did you guys ever, I mean, surely this was not real. I've never asked Rick about it, but was this just supposed to be a, a promotional vehicle for WCW or <laughs> that had nothing to do with WCW that, that, that whole thing kind of popped up organically in North Carolina. It had nothing to do with us. We weren't promoting it. We didn't orchestrate it. We, we didn't kind of create this, you know, campaign to position Rick as possibly running for governor. That, it had nothing to do with WCW. We may have reported on it or talked about it in commentary, but we we didn't create that. It's hysterical, is it not? Can you imagine? No. Can you imagine the budget meetings? <laughs> Can you imagine? How much fun would it be to have Ric Flair as a governor? My goodness. I don't even know what to say to that. That's just crazy. Uh, let's talk about, uh, Hulk Hogan. He appears on your old pal man cow in the morning radio show, of course, based out of Chicago it happens in early January. He has a couple of different, uh, comments here, or there where I don't know. It, it feels like there's some, some meat on the bone here regarding Dennis Rodman suing WCW for shorting him on his pay. He says it's not Rodman. It's Dwight Manley, his agent. Rodman is in his own cosmic world, man. He doesn't even know about the lawsuit. I don't remember ever discussing this with you, but 
when there was a discrepancy about Rodman's pay, it didn't affect the relationship with Rodman at all. He managed to to stay out of that. Yeah. That's remarkable. No, and it, it, look, here's the, and I don't know what, again, I don't know what it's like today, but I do know back in the nineties, you know, even 2000, you put on a pay-per-view, you get a buy rate that gets published. People can do the math and figure out how much money that generated. And that's great. And that's what you talk about. And to a certain degree, to a large degree, we would use those numbers that were published by the pay-per-view companies to kind of help build our forecasts and build our budgets for the following year. Like I said, like we talked about earlier. So the information in terms of the buy rates and the success or lack thereof was generally fairly accurate. But here's the problem. The money sometimes took up to a year for that money to actually hit WCW. You would get a percentage of it, say 30 or 40 percentage of percent of it you would probably get within the first 60 days but the balance would kind of trickle in throughout the rest of the year and what what people and i'm sure some listeners know this already but perhaps some don't so i'll briefly try to explain the economics of pay-per-view at least back in the 90s again i don't know what it's like today but back in the 90s you know we had contracts in place with we had a number of them, but DirecTV was the biggest one, right? They had the, the largest kind of pay-per-view distribution footprint. So we had to deal with them. And, you know, we had, uh, it started out being a 60-40 split with the DirecTV getting 60% of it. By the time, you know, things started moving, I renegotiated those deals and we were at a 50-50 split. And then I think we were even at a 60-40 with WCW on the 60% side. So as we became more successful and we're generating more revenue, we created the leverage that allowed us to renegotiate our distribution fee. But those fees would be published. But what happens is when a, when a pay-per-view would go up, let's say we did, uh, in this case, sold out, right, in 99. Thing comes out on whatever day it was, January 14th, January 17th, whatever. The DirecTV would feed that to their local, to the local markets. So it was your local cable system. As a buyer, if Conrad, you know, Thompson is, you know, 22 years old and he wants to watch this pay-per-view, um, he buys it from his local cable company who, who, who got the signal from DirecTV. So WCW would have to wait till the local television company, right, processed payments, did their internal account, accounting on the local level, and then forwarded the revenue that they owed to DirecTV to DirecTV, and then DirecTV would hold on to it, and they would have to do all of their auditing and make sure that their accounting was in place, and then eventually, you know, whatever money was owed to WCW would get to WCW. That process, because there were so many local cable systems around the country, and they were they were kind of all independent, right? They all got their their feed from DirecTV, but they were all independently owned. And some of them would get around to reconciling their their finances, you know, once a quarter, sometimes twice a year, you know, sometimes once a month. They were all different. And that's one of the reasons why the revenue from the pay-per-views, even though it said, you know, maybe January 20th in 1999, sold out to, you know, X amount of revenue, $5 million of revenue. Well, we wouldn't see that. We'd see maybe a million and a half or two million of it, and the rest of it would trickle in throughout the rest of the year, sometimes longer, sometimes a year and a half. So what happened, going back to Dennis and Dwight Manley, who was his agent at the time or manager, 
um, Dwight would read this information, which was true. It was accurate. It was coming right from DirecTV. But what he didn't realize is the money hadn't come in yet. Right. And the money wouldn't come in for the next year. So Dennis wasn't going to get the full amount of, of money that would have been due to him based on the, the, the four corners of his contract until WCW received the money. And that's where the conflict came in. And it, that's why it wasn't really uh, a discrepancy. It was more communication between Dwight Manley and, and his understanding of the contract and the process. But Dennis, Dennis never got involved in it. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about Kevin Nash appearing on Mark Madden's radio show. Uh, when Nash asks, or, or Sting is the topic of discussion, Nash says, Sting has a severe yeast infection, and that's why he's out of action. And then he says that Jericho and Bischoff had a handshake agreement, but now Jericho's asking for more money because the salary structure has increased since then. But Nash hopes they can reach an agreement so Jericho can stay. And he goes on to say that Bischoff is a fun guy to go to the bar with, but often loses his cool when he's upset. He says that Vince is much smoother and more persuasive and could quote, convince you to leap off of a building. Uh, so obviously uh, he's having a little fun talking about Sting being out here, but the Jericho Bischoff handshake agreement. I don't know that we've, we certainly did a lot of, of content about Jericho, but did you guys and at least in your mind, think you had a handshake deal and then he sort of backed up on that deal? No, no. I think that was Kevin, Kevin being creative and being entertaining and interesting, but it wasn't true. What about the, um, the way he would categorize you here as being someone who's fun to go to the bar with, but you lose your cool when you're upset. Fair criticism. It's really interesting. Well, let me just answer it and then I'll go off. <laughs> I, I was capable of losing my temper. Right. I was, I was capable of getting hot. It really didn't happen too often. Um, but I would react viscerally to situations or to comments. I, I wouldn't necessarily try to, uh, to put on a game face if if I was in a situation I thought was out of control or I was in a discussion that I felt was uh, inappropriate or whatever, um, I, I was capable of losing my shit. However, um, it very rarely happened, you know, and what's really interesting is to listening to Kevin's characterization of Vince McMahon. You know, I'm not going to go into any detail. And I, I think there's enough information out there in the public domain about Vince McMahon's reaction to shit. I think if anybody were to honestly compare <laughs> the way I react to negative things versus the way that Vince McMahon reacts to negative things, I'll, I, I don't know. I feel, find it hard to believe that would, people would put me in the more volatile category. Fair I, mean, I, I, I could, I could react. I could, you know, see, I mean, Eddie Guerrero, most famously, Eddie Guerrero and I getting into an argument, you know, when I threw a cup of coffee, it was probably the most angry I ever got because then it, you know, it escalated from verbal to, you know, borderline physical. Hang, hang on. So you're finally admitting you threw the coffee at him. No, I did. I threw the coffee. <laughs> I didn't throw the coffee at him. Mucker <laughs> 
I know. It's just, I have to, every time it comes up, I've got to just go to it. Cause I know it gets you fired up. It does, but no, I look, I don't know. I, I could lose my cool. I did. I have, I probably still will in the future, but it, it, it didn't happen nearly as often as people like to make it sound. It did. Uh, Meltzer would write Eddie Guerrero's condition has improved and he's now looking at being back in the ring in about three more months while it was downplayed publicly. He did nearly die the day after the accident because of liver problems, because the liver was lacerated in the accident. Uh, some of you may not remember, but uh, there was a, a huge and horrible accident that happened on new year's day, 1999, Eddie crashed his, uh, his car and, uh, he fell asleep behind the wheel. And I guess he was thrown a hundred feet out of his sunroof. Uh, but somehow wound up landing on softer sand. And it's a rare case where had he been wearing his seatbelt because of how badly mangled the car wound up, he probably wouldn't have lived. And, you know, had he landed on a hard surface, it may have been just as bad or maybe worse, but man, Eddie had a, a freaking angel on his shoulder that night. Did he not? He certainly did. He certainly did. I'm glad that he uh, was able to make it out of that one. And let's keep it going here. Let's get to the pay-per-view while we're really here. We've been talking for more than an hour now, sold out 1999. Our very first match is Chris Benoit and Mike Enos. They go 10 minutes and 34 seconds, really two very capable performers. Benoit probably at this point, best in the world. Meltzer would say this match had really good heat, particularly for the wicked chops. Benoit was throwing that ripped the skin off Enos's chest. Benoit was great as usual in carrying the match and everything he did was over with the crowd. Even though Enos isn't pushed as a commodity, the audience had no reason to care. Unfortunately, the usually underrated Enos did not have a great performance in his highest profile match with the company. Benoit did his rolling German suplexes and a headbutt off the top rope and Enos turned things around, but then he threw the weakest looking clothesline in history which apparently he was expecting the arm to be used not to hit Benoit, but to be caught with the crossface. Anyway, after Benoit sold the lame blow, he took Enos down with the crossface submission, three stars. So maybe a little bit of a mistimed finish, but it's a big opportunity for Mike Enos. And I don't think he would have a shot like this again. After this, was he back to Saturday night? Yeah. I mean, Mike was never, um, and I had worked with Mike all the way back in the AWA. Uh, Mike started, I believe Mike started around the same time I did, or either right before or right after, real close. He had teamed up with Wayne Bloom, uh, Wayne the Train Bloom, who was a power lifter, incredibly strong and talented guy, and a very entertaining guy. They were the destruction like, crew, right? They were the destruction crew. And Wayne was always the one with the personality and the charisma and, you know, he's kind of over the top character. Mike was always a little bit, uh, how would I describe Mike? Um, kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to compare him to anybody else. It's unfair, but he was kind of the, the, the muscle in the group, so to speak. Wayne would talk shit, you know, Mike would back it up kind of thing. Now, that's probably the best way to describe it. But the, the fact is that Mike and I like Mike a lot and would love to kind of run cross paths with him again. I haven't seen him in a long time, but Mike just didn't have that. He didn't have the charisma. He, he had the ability, incredibly talented guy in many respects. But once he got into that ring, um, 
I don't know if he was just not as confident as he needed to be or just wasn't as comfortable as he needed to be, but he never really delivered when he needed to, you know, when it was the most important, even though he had the capabilities. It's a little bit like somebody, I think, that gets stage fright. They may have all the talent in the world and go out and, you know, play the piano or sing a song in the, in the shower or whatever and sound great. And the minute they get out in front of people, they kind of, they, they get they clam up a little bit. That was probably Mike Enos to a T. And that's one of the reasons why he never really kind of broke, broke out of that mid card kind of status. But this was, yeah, his last opportunity. If you go back and you look at this, you know, this is a match, I think in Mike Enos where he looked complete, completely different than he had been, you know, he had dropped a bunch of weight. He had gotten, you know, he chiseled and he was kind of cut up. Uh, he wasn't as much of a gimmick. I think he came out in his black boots and black, you know, black trunks and, was kind of a very straightforward, almost in the in the image of an Arn Anderson, as opposed to being kind of a goofy character or a colorful character. Uh, but it just, you know, unfortunately, it just didn't work for him. It's a shame too, because I think his uh, his claim to fame is always going to be he was the guy in the ring when Scott Hall came through the crowd uh, to jump ship to WCW, and I think he wound up doing some tag stuff the next month. But a year later, he's out of WCW and in real life now next up we've got norman smiley and chavo guerrero jr 15 minutes and 44 seconds gave him plenty of time i think you you could argue maybe too much time uh Meltzer liked it he gave it a star and a half and uh the write-up says smiley came out with an urn supposedly with the ashes of pepe now pepe as you may remember is the hobby horse that chavo used to ride i guess to the ring uh, Guerrero looked good, but they were, uh, out there for too long. Smiley can wrestle on the map, but fans don't want to see that in America. And when he's on his feet, he doesn't work well. He's over as a cold deal with his big wiggle, but he spent the match teasing until finally doing it. Guerrero blocked the chicken wing. Smiley blocked the swinging DDT. And then Smiley then threw the sawdust from the urn into Guerrero's eyes and used the chicken wing submission. So you've got two really, really good wrestlers here who are. Uh, sort of traditional wrestlers in every sense of the word, but now they're WCW character. They've got to amp up the entertainment. So Chavo Guerrero would ride a, a cotton filled horse head on a stick to the ring. And Norman Smiley would tease, uh, that he was having sex with you from behind and smacking your ass and call it the big wiggle out of context. This is really, really hard to explain to a non-wrestling fan. Is it not? <laughs> It's even hard to explain to a wrestling fan. I, I, I did go back and look at this to, to prep for this show, and I loved it. Now, I think I loved it because it's so absurd sure. and, and funny, and I loved it because you know, I'm pretty good friends with, with Chavo even to this day, um, and, and I love watching Norman work, or especially his work back in you know the 90s. I, I, just, I thought his character was awesome, but it is just bizarroville. It really is. And the whole, you know, Pepe, Chavo told me the story. I asked him about a year and a half ago. I don't know what prompted me to ask him, but I said, who the fuck came up with the idea with that, that horse on a stick? And that was Eddie's idea. If I remember the story correctly, Eddie and Chavo were at a niece's birthday party. And Chavo was just kind of screwing around, playing with the kids. And I, it was either Eddie or Chavo that went, hey, this, this would be a great gimmick to add. So... That wasn't my idea or Kevin Sullivan's or Ric Flair's or Dusty Rose or anybody else that you want to blame. That was actually them 
going, either Eddie or Chavo, I don't remember which one, my apologies, uh, Chavo, if you're listening to this, but one of them, you know, came to me with the idea of thought it was fun, and, you know, Chavo was playing like this crazy lunatic character that had this thing about this horse on a stick, and it played itself into storylines. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, I would definitely, I would submit to you that, you know, a good bowl of reefer would make this a lot more, more entertaining to watch and you might get it a little bit better. I mean, it's, it really is funny stuff. And, and both of these guys, very, very great wrestlers, you know, Norman smiling, probably one of the more underrated, but for whatever reason over the years, he wasn't known for being a guy with the big personality, but when he started the big wiggle man, it was over. I mean, I had a casual wrestling fan uncle who, uh, I mean, he, he watched it every now and again, if it was on in the background, but he wasn't like a super passionate wrestling fan and goddamn, he loved Norman Smiley in the big wiggle. So it's hard to knock that, you know, it, it wasn't cool or it wasn't over. It didn't make sense. Cause it certainly did to uh, a certain section of fans. Yeah, it did. And look, you know, it's, it's the line I've used before wrestling when, when presented well over the course of a one hour, well now like two hours of the norm or even a pay-per-view two and a half, three hours. When it's at its best, it's like a, an entertainment buffet. You know, you've got serious, you know, intense, very physical action. You've got comedy type of action and storylines and characters. You've, you, you've got a mix of in between. You've got a little bit of something for everybody, just like a really good buffet. And, and this is, I think, the case where, where Chavo, in this case, and, and Norman were putting on the more comedic aspect of, of, a, a pay-per-view and I, I, I loved it. You know, I, again, maybe because I know the people involved or it just brings back great memories or because I know the story about the horse on a stick. I don't know why, but I just loved it. I thought it was fun to watch. Next up. We've got David Finley pinning Van Hammer in seven minutes and 54 seconds with a tombstone pile driver, rare appearance here from Van Hammer. He actually showed up. Uh, Meltzer would say crowd was totally dead. Hammer was a sub for Steve McMichael who missed his flight due to the dreaded personal problems. And what was scheduled to be a long anticipated battle of the tombstone pile drivers. McMichael did make a later flight, uh, but he wouldn't have been able to make it to the building until 10 P. So they told him to just stay in Columbus. Nobody missed him. Dud dud rating here. I know Van Hammer is in your all time. Top five. You saw this match for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Uh, I, I was just thinking about how much I enjoy watching fit, you know, and thinking about, I mean, to answer your question, I thought the match sucked and it didn't suck. Obviously fit did everything that he could. Van Hammer was just Van Hammer. Um, there was no way that even, you know, fit Finley and as great of a talent as fit was and as smart as he is kind of hard to make chicken salad out of chicken shit in this case. And sure. it just it didn't come off well, but we got through it. Let's talk about Steve McMichael. This is really sort of the swan song for him. I think his final appearance is February 8th, 1999, an episode of Nitro, and then he's just gone. Um, and this is written in the observer here, personal problems. I know that he had been, you know, having a rocky, a rocky time with Deborah McMichael. Obviously that marriage is on the rocks and the rumor in innuendo is that once upon a time Mongo liked to party and maybe he <laughs> had, um, you know, some things he would carry around and occasionally credit cards would separate those things on a table and roll tide. 
is that what's being alluded to here? Did, was he starting to, to veer off into the, the party drug world a little too much, maybe? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to be careful how I answer this because I didn't see, I didn't see it with my own eyes, but I believe that there were a lot of things that were distracting Steve. And I think partying was one of them and probably the, the, the biggest one. Um, yeah, it, I, I think the partying, we'll just leave it at that, um, without being any more specific was absolutely the downfall when it came to his relationship with WCW. I mean, it was, it took a toll on him physically and personally. It took a real toll on him. I, I had not, you know, after January, February, I had not laid eyes on Steve in a long time. You know, once we made the decision to part company, uh, it was a clean, clean split. There was no discussions. There was no meetings, none of that. Um, and I think I saw him one time in the spring. Uh, he didn't even know I was in the vicinity. I was down in Florida, and he was down here camping out with, I think he was camping out with Big Show uh, or living in his house or something like that. And I saw him, and he just looked like death warmed over. Uh, but he pulled out of it. He's doing well now. But, yeah, that was the, one of the primary reasons why we just had to part company. Next up, we've got Bam Bam Bigelow and Wrath. They're going to go nine minutes and 23 seconds. Bam Bam gets the win with the greetings from Asbury Park. Meltzer would say it was hard hitting, but the match didn't have any heat. Wrath missed the charge into the corner right before the finish. Three quarters of a star. Uh, Wrath is somebody that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about here on the show. I kind of liked the presentation of Wrath. Maybe it was, um, I don't know, a little late for this more real era of WCW. Brian Clark is, of course, the guy behind the character. What did you think of the Wrath character, and, and, and do you think it was maybe just a little too late, or did we just not have the right creative here? Why wasn't it a bigger hit or more sustainable? I think it was two things. I think it was a little too late, number one, and, and much like Mike Enos, Brian didn't have that. He was a great talent. He had an amazing look. He's a smart guy. I mean, if, if there were a list of, you know, 10 things that, you know, somebody needed to become a real star in the wrestling industry. I think Brian probably had eight of them, seven of them. What he didn't have was that natural, just you're either born with, born with it or you're not, you know, kind of charisma. You can't teach charisma. You can't, you know, you can't have a charisma class. You can't put it in a pill. You can't put it in a bottle. There's just, you, you can't have it surgically implanted. You either are born with charisma and it comes very naturally to you and you learn how to use it at a very young age or you don't. And I mean, it's like, you know, I've been trying almost all of my life to learn how to play the guitar about once or twice a year. I, I kind of gave up on it a few years ago, but I've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. I've taken lessons from really, really talented instructors and I've tried to teach myself. I've tried. I've tried since I was like eight years old. I've always wanted to play the guitar. Well, guess what? I just suck at music. I have no music skills whatsoever. And no matter how hard I try, nobody's going to turn me into even a marginal guitar player because I have no talent for it. And I think to a certain degree, charisma is a lot like that. You, you either are born with it and you have this gift or you don't. And, right. and Brian, Brian didn't. He didn't have the level of charisma. He had charisma, but he didn't have the level of charisma 
he needed to kind of take him over the finish line and put him into that superstar, top star talent basis, right? His ability on the mic was marginal, and partly because he didn't have the charisma. They kind of go hand in hand. But when you don't have the mic skills, you don't have that natural charisma, you know, that makes the audience care about you one way or the other, no matter what you look like or how perfect your wrestling can be. Uh, you just don't quite get the job done. And I think Brian fell into the that category. Just so you know, since you said you want to learn how to play guitar, it's almost like saying Beetlejuice three times out of the mirror. Matt Coon is going to appear in your DMs or email or something trying to teach you guitar soon. Don't fall for it. Ain't going to happen. I've, I've, find, I've resolved myself to the fact. I love listening to guitar. I'm, I admire those who can play it. It's one of my favorite instruments. And I love classical guitar music, by the way. I love uh, flamenco. Uh, I, I love, love, love listening to flamenco music when it's done really, really well. Um, acoustic guitar is my favorite. But I don't care what Matt Coon says. He's not going to be able to teach me how to play guitar. I'm not going to waste the time trying to learn, more importantly. And something that uh, might help you get to sleep is our next match. Lex Luger and Conan. They go nine minutes and 31 seconds. Lex gets the win. The crowd goes nuts when Conan comes out to the song that they love. And, uh, Conan's over right here. That cannot be stressed enough. Meltzer would say they had a real hot first minute or two until Conan missed the lowest drop kick in wrestling and the air was sucked out of the crowd. Most of the match saw Luger work on Conan's back. And just before the finish as they were outside the ring, Conan told Luger that his back was out. So to stop the match and call the doctor. There was a lot of heat on this as evidenced by Kevin Nash's interview on Nitro the next night. Luger got a smirk on his face, figuring Conan was blown up and didn't stop the match. And it didn't even look like Conan was going to try to get back in the ring, but he did. And somehow Conan got Luger in the tequila sunrise. Liz sprayed black paint in Conan's eyes. Luger racked him. And it looks like they're going to hook Luger and Liz up on television. Three quarters of a star. What happened here, Eric? God, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, I really don't. I mean, obviously, I watched the match, and this is the first that I'm hearing that um, His Conan was, was hurt. Yeah. Right? Which explains what I saw, because it was, you know, look, Conan, you know, at, at his peak was never a luchador. Right. right in 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 the traditional sense of right. being a high flying you know aerial kind of a, uh, of attack he he wasn't that he was a strong character he's a big guy he was a powerful guy he was more of a you know a, a brawler than anything um, but he was you know in this match he, it was obviously you know now now I understand it with his back hurting because he looked like he was about a beat and a half off he was just a beat and a half behind the whole match. It was slow. It was awkward. It was cumbersome. And, um, now I know why, uh, in terms of, you know, the incident and what went down in the ring, uh, you know, I, as far as Conan asking Lex to call the match, you know, I, I don't know the details of that. I don't recall it. I'm not even sure I knew about it at the time. So I don't know how to respond to it other than that. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about our next match. It's Chris Jericho and Perry Saturn. And they're going to go 11 minutes and 44 seconds. Jericho's on his way out, but he beats Perry Saturn here. So now Perry has to wear a dress for 90 days. And the stipulation was changed with the loser having to wear the dress because Saturn basically volunteered to lose the match that he was probably initially supposed to win. 
since Jericho isn't getting pushed, of course. And Meltzer would say, I guess Saturn figures that wearing a dress got Pillman over. And at least he won't just be another guy in the pack on television. As long as he's got the stress on. What do you think here? This is, uh, I don't know. Interesting to say the least. So these are two very capable performers, but there's a lot of shenanigans here. Ralphus is here. Scott Dickinson's here as I guess a heel referee. It doesn't exactly click though. And I can't exactly figure out why. Um, I don't know that this whole dress situation, what do you remember about this match and the stipulation and how it came to be? Um, I don't recall whose idea it was for the dress, but I do remember, uh, vividly that Perry was very excited about it. He wanted, he wanted to lose the match. He wanted that to be his gimmick. Don't ask me why it could very well be because he saw, you know, Brian Pillman made it work and he wanted to, to, to try to uh, capture some of that magic for himself. I don't know. Uh, but all I know, he was very enthusiastic about the idea, so it it made sense. The match was awkward, though. I think one of the reasons it didn't click, you know, the Scott Dickinson thing. When I, you know, when I watched it back to prep for the show, it I, I think the reason it didn't click is because it didn't make any sense. You know, what was the motivation? Now m- maybe there was storyline leading up to this that I just don't remember. You know, on television, and maybe there was a reason for Scott Dickinson. Uh, to, to to pull something like this, you know, storyline-wise. But it wasn't apparent. I didn't hear about anything in the commentary, at least that I noticed, uh, that would have set it up or planted a seed or helped establish that, you know, there was some kind of an issue between Dickinson and Perry. So it just kind of came from out of nowhere. Um, and in a typical WCW fashion for finish, it was, you know, sloppy and, and kind of an anticlimactic finish. It, it got the job done. It checked the box in, in terms of Scott, you know, fast counting um, Perry out. But it just didn't have any real drama or make any sense. Next up, quite a match. If you're going to watch one match this week from our, our podcast, I can't recommend this one enough. It's Billy Kidman, Juventud Guerrera, Psychosis, and Rey Mysterio. It's a four corners match. They go 14 minutes and 24 seconds. Meltzer would say, as usual, these guys were the show stealers. Billy gets the win, of course. Really a remarkable match. Meltzer gave it four stars. I'm not going to do a breakdown, but there is such athleticism. And I don't know if you're looking for action, if you're looking for a good match, this is about as good as it's going to get on this show. And I know I feel like we say that every week with these luchadors, but holy cow, dude, Mysterio and Hooventude and Psychosis, they're all another level. And Kidman was holding his own too. I'll tell you what, and I know this is, you know, broad statement, but I think if you go back and look at this match, and I encourage you, go to wwenetwork.com, go to sold out 1999. If for no other reason, if you don't have WWE Network right now, the 9.99 a month or whatever it costs is worth it just to watch this match. Yeah. These guys set the bar in, in terms of presentation and, and, and excitement and bringing a whole new level of presentation to the industry. These guys set the bar that I don't think anybody today could hit as consistently as these guys hit. You know, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from anybody in the current product that's out, that's out there right now because there is amazing skill, amazing talent. I respect the hell out of everybody that's out there doing it today because it's tough because the bar has, has been raised so high. 
but I don't think you can point to four people in the business today that could go out week after week and put on this kind of a show. I just don't. Ray Mysterio was at his absolute prime here. Yeah. There's in my opinion. And I and I think everybody in the ring was at this point. It is a fantastic match that I think set the bar for decades to come. I think it's going to be a long time before we find anybody that can go out there, four guys that can go out there, or women that could go out there and put on this quality of a match um, at any given point. And these guys did it week after week after week. I'll tell you what, go back and watch the last 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Watch, Watch Rey Mysterio in the last... 45 seconds, 30, 45 seconds of this match. Just mind-blowing the skill that this guy had. Just really, really, I was excited to see it. I'm going to go back and watch it again. That's how excited I was to see it. Here's the last paragraph of the write-up. Mysterio Jr. and Psychosis did a springboard doomsday device, double-team move on Guerrera. Then Mysterio Jr. leaped over at referee Charles Robinson's back with a running flip dive onto Kidman. And it appeared, it appeared that Kidman banged his already injured shoulder on this spot. And then Carrera, Guerrero did a crazy air hoovy dive on everyone. Then Kidman and Mysterio were laid on the floor. And Psychosis does a running dive over the top rope into a senton onto the floor. And after a bunch of reversals and near falls, Mysterio Jr. did a springboard to the floor into a Frankensteiner on Psychosis. While in the ring, Kidman used the shooting star press on Guerrero. That's your finish. Dude, it's... it's unbelievable that this is the way it is, but, uh, quite the match. The only criticism that's written in the write-up is the way Tony Schiavone was putting over the stuff. He says, poor Tony Schiavone announced earlier in the show that Kidman and Mysterio had won the coin flip and would start. Then when Guerrero's music was second, he said that Guerrero must've won the coin flip and he and Kidman would start. And then Mysterio started with Kidman and the fans started chanting USA and Schiavone explained. And I'm not making this up how the rules of this match make no sense. And there's no logic and everyone tagging out under these rules. Of course, he's right. That begs the next question. Why book rules that make no sense? So obviously the athleticism and the performance is out of this world, but we're being pretty critical of the, the logic in tagging out in a four corners match. Was that sort of. And this has been highly debated because of some things that were said in the early episodes of dynamite from AW with regards to sort of Lucha tag rules does because three of the four of these guys are Lucha performers. Do you cut that, that piece of break, or do you think the psychology still needs to be intact no matter what? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, let's just talk about the reality. The reality is, yes, we we had a lot of latitude when it came to rules and logic when it came to the luchadors because that style oftentimes was kind of elusive when it came to logic and common sense uh, with regard to the rules and the action made up for it. So, yeah, we we cut it some slack. In retrospect... um, yeah, I wish we would have had a little bit more of a logic behind it. That would, because here's what here's here's the downside. Of, yes, I wish we would have had more logic. Yes, I wish. In in hindsight, 2020 hindsight. It's the first time I've said that all year. Now that it's 2020, in 2020 hindsight, uh, which now 2020 hindsight makes much more sense when you say it to people. 
But in 2020 hindsight, yeah, I would have loved to have structured this match in a way that the psychology with regard to the rules would have made more sense because the audience would have been able to buy into it more than they did. What the audience was buying into here, which is the phenomenal athleticism and the action, which is great. But if there would have been structure behind it and story behind it, it would have made a lot more sense. It would have made it easier for the announcers to help tell the story and to add color and depth behind what we were seeing, which would have made it more entertaining than just the action for the sake of action, which was, that's what this match was. It was action for the sake of action. To be clear, cause I feel like we were maybe vague there. Um, I'm not anti Lucha. Uh, style. I'm just saying it is a little different in terms of the tags are a little fast and loose. Some guys could be inside the ring already when they're tagged. And sometimes the, uh, the transition spots where, you know, one guy is going to Irish whip another guy into the ropes and they're going to run the ropes. What they would do is just like pat the guy on the back and then he just takes off running. And so some old timers have been fairly critical of that over the years, understandably, but in theory, you know, if, if in real life, no one does an Irish rope anyway, if I start to you know, pull you somewhere, the minute I stop pulling, you stop running. And that's not the way wrestling was set up here. So suspend your disbelief for a little bit and go watch this fucking match. It's outstanding. Let's not ruin a good thing here. This four corners match well worth the 10 bucks for the WWE network. As, as you said, <laughs> let's talk about the next match here. Cause this is the one that even though it's not the last match, it's the one I've wanted to talk about for a while. We've got Rick and David Flair on one side, Barry Windham and Kurt Henning on the other. 13 minutes, 56 seconds. The Flares get the win. And uh, it's written in the uh, Observer here. David, who had trained to do just a few spots with Windham but had no training time with Henning, was in just for the angle. He totally lacked facial expressions and wasn't ready to be in a match, but he has never trained to be a wrestler either. But he's still better than a Reggie White or a Jay Leno and showed up in better condition to perform than Dennis Rodman. Oh God. Who said that? Who said that? Dave Meltzer showed up in better shape. Now, does that mean? No, 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 no. Chemically or or physical condition. Well, I think he's talking about the fact that Dennis Rodman fell asleep during a tag match once. So it's probably that he had been partying a little bit. Ah, it's just Dennis. Dennis looks like he, Dennis would look like he's getting ready to fall asleep. If he was flying a jet, it's just Dennis. But anyway, no, I just struck me when someone said, you know, David Flair, you know, David Flair's Great young man. I haven't seen him in years. I'd love to run into him, and hopefully we will soon. But he was 19 freaking years old at yeah. this point. Yeah, that's and, important and, to remember. And to suggest that this 19-year-old kid was in better shape than an NBA Hall of Famer who was active with the Chicago Bulls was kind of a fucking stretch. So well, I just wanted to clear that up. Clearly, he's talking about party stuff, not okay. robots. Okay, I'm good with that. Uh, after David did a spots with Wyndham, he tagged out and it was largely a handicap match. And, um, let's just fast forward. Arn Anderson's going to get involved, of course. And, uh, there's going to be big chance, uh, for Goldberg and sting when the beatdown comes, we should mention that, um, Anderson hits Kurt with a tire iron, David pins him. And then after the match, the NWO comes in. And they just destroy everybody, including Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit, who's also running in for the save. Then Hogan comes out and he handcuffs Rick to the ropes. They take David down and Hogan starts whipping him with his lifting belt. And this is quite a scene. I mean, a big scene. Hogan eventually spray paints E Z E on David's back and they throw David to Rick. 
and they drag him out. Hogan's punching him a few times and whipping him super heat on this angle. Meltzer gives it two and a quarter stars, but really the angle afterwards is monster heat. Um, David has said of the beating with the belt, it was Hogan, Henning and Wyndham with Buff Bagwell and Scott Norton. They grabbed my dad and handcuffed him to the ropes. Then they held my arms and legs while Hogan whipped me with the belt. He had told me he was going to hit me three or four times. And I was like, okay, but he probably hit me 15 or 20 times. He just whipped the shit out of me. The belt would go around my back and slash me in the stomach. And I was black and blue. And I'll never forget how Scott Norton, this big, strong guy, who used to be an arm wrestling champion, kind of squeezed my hand as they held my arm down. And he kept asking, are you okay, kid? I never expected that from him. But then again, I never expected to get whipped like this. That shit hurts. And Rick said of the whipping, what no one told me was that Hogan was going to try to get cute and whip David over and over again. It wasn't fair to make my son go through that. He wasn't even really a wrestler yet, but there was nothing I could do. I was handcuffed to the ropes. I couldn't jump up and say, Hey, don't do this to my kid. I wanted to, I felt like running over and holding David in my arms and I, and just stopping this stupid angle right there. He wasn't ready, but David didn't say a word. He took it like a man. You had Kurt and Barry, two of the best performers during their primes. And they bounced around for every one of David's moves. And my son couldn't do anything at that point, And they made him look like a star. And then there was Hogan with all his experience, all his credibility, trying to be cute. He whipped David like a dog. It was sickening and I'll never forgive him for it. This has been a hotly debated angle and flair contends that Hogan took it too far. You and I've never talked about it. What'd you think watching it back for the first time in a long time? There was a guy I met many years ago by the name of Jeff Pollock. He was a director, producer, really, really successful, super successful guy. And I, I re- remember I was in a meeting with him. I don't remember what we were pitching or what we were discussing, but he, he said something to me and he very, he was, he since passed away, but he was a super successful director and producer in Hollywood. And, and, and talent manager. I think he managed J-Lo at the time or whatever. But nonetheless, he said something to me one time. He said, Eric, the way I approach every project I touch, whether it's film or television, is when it comes to story, the end always hangs on the beginning. As long as long, that's the first thing I think about. So when I think about a project, I think about the end of the project. What's the last scene? What's the what's the outcome? And then I work backwards from there, because the end hangs on the beginning. And as you asked me this question, I looked at this match, and I understand the controversy that surrounded it. But when you ask me the question, the first thing I think about is, okay, well, if the end hangs on the beginning, then it was a fucking awesome piece of business. Because the end of this is so emotional and believable and real, and we both know, and so does the audience. Anybody that's been listening to the show for more than a couple episodes, you know, we've covered how Ric Flair can can be. He, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, on his collar, on his forehead. He wears a hat that he can attach his emotions to. There's no doubt, you know, when you're around Ric Flair, how he's feeling or where he's at emotionally, because he wears it. And obviously, in this case he was very emotional and justifiably so i don't know that i could have taken it now when it went down 
again, I wasn't an agent. I didn't sit down and lay out matches with guys, especially somebody like Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. That was their job. And they had agents and things like that. But really, when it came to Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, um, they, they produced themselves for the most part. And I wasn't necessarily a part of it. But when I was watching it, my assumption was, and just knowing Hulk the way that I know Hulk, that's something that he would have discussed with Rick. Rick, Hulk was never the type of person, isn't the type of person that would take liberties like that, especially with somebody like David. At least that was my impression at that point. I still don't know. I've never sat down and talked to Hulk about it. I've never really followed up and talked to Rick about it. Um, I don't really know what the communication was between Hulk and Rick. Had Hulk Hogan taken those liberties as Rick suggested that he did, I have no reason to not to believe Rick, then I think it was inappropriate as much as, you know, Hulk's a friend of mine and I, and I love him to death. You know, we all do things in, in the heat of the moment or in, in, at the peak of a, uh, of a situation where we sometimes don't use our best judgment, but I just can't imagine that, you know, Hulk would have just done that without having some kind of communication with Rick and or David. It's hard, hard to believe, but if, if he did, I think he took it too far. But the end of it, David's got a hell of a story, and we got a great finish. Before we get to uh, what the the next step of the story would be, Rick wrote in his book, Dev, David never spoke about becoming a wrestler when he was growing up, not once. I'd always felt he was a little shell-shocked from not having a father in his day-to-day life, and I worried about him. Now I wasn't sure if he was going in the right direction. He was almost too nice a person for this insensitive business. I spoke to him about forgetting wrestling and going back and taking the state troopers exam, but he was so happy. It was hard to say no. How do you think this came to be? Do you remember how David wound up coming into the business? Is this something that Rick brought to you guys or, or, or someone on creative maybe thought would be worth a look? I don't really remember how, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember the catalyst for David, you know, stepping into the ring it probably started out more as using david in an angle and then david kind of digging it and somebody saying hey what if we do this what if we do that and david getting a little bit of taste of the business i you know i i i certainly i can't speak for david and what was his motivation i i believe rick in in his recollection of this I, I can understand why rick wouldn't have wanted david to get into the business because david is really is you know a super nice, nice kid and a solid citizen and you know he's not an outward gregarious type of personality so i i can understand why rick was tentative about him getting into business but um david wanted to david was enthusiastic about it. i think david I, and again i don't know i don't want to even i'm, I'm going to stop right there because i don't want to say something that someone would misinterpret I'll just say that if I was David and I had a chance to work with my dad and kind of be a part of a business that he had been aware of, but not necessarily, you know, close to because of their relationship, I can understand why a 19 year old kid would want to get involved. It would be a hell of an opportunity, but I can also understand why Rick wouldn't have wanted him to. Um, in either case, you know, I, I think it probably was a mistake for, I, I would guess that if you had, I don't know, maybe you have, you tell me, does David look back on this as something that he's glad he tried or is it a, is it a bad taste he still has in his mouth? Oh no. I mean, he just says, you know, I, I did wrestling in reverse. Most of the time you, 
you know, you start in the business working in armories and then you work up to arenas. I did it backwards. Um, but you know, he hangs around here for a few months and Stacy Keebler shows up. So it ain't like it. I, it's all bad news. You know what I mean? No shit. Right. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta come on. Are you kidding me? God, I would have, I would have let Hogan whip my ass with that belt three times a week for that opportunity. I mean, yeah. And then you fucking ruined it all. when you told her not to do playboy, I'm going to punch you in the dick next time I see you. <laughs> Uh, Meltzer would say there are no long-term plans to keep David Flair around. He was just brought in to do the angle to set up Flair and Hogan. He's planning to be a state trooper, but hasn't closed his mind to the idea of being a wrestler, uh, but won't become a wrestler without a lot more training than he's received thus far. Of course, we know the next night on, uh, on nitro Flair comes out, cuts a crazy promo blames you for all of this. Eventually it gets set up. It's going to be you and David Flair in a match. And Rick says something like, you know, if, uh, or you say, if you beat David, Rick has to shave his head and relinquish control of WCW. And then Rick says, okay, but if he beats you, we get to shave your head and your ass. And Zabisco says, can't we just shave his head? And Tavon Shivani says, no, I'd like to see all of it, which is kind of funny. Uh, and weird. And then you guys have a one minute and 11 second match. You're hitting David with karate kicks early. And as you're gloating, David pulls out a roll of coins, hits you with a punch. Uh, David breaks the roll of coins and, uh, knocks you out referee and referee, Randy Anderson raises David's arm. And there you go. The horsemen charge the ring. They start shaving your head. And, uh, it's a fun, it's a fun angle, a fun promo to say the least. And, well, we saw a different Eric Bischoff after this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, you did. That was, uh, you know, and I, I, the shave in the head was my idea because I was so sick of dyeing my hair. I just hated dyeing my hair. And I know I talk a lot about my hair because it is perfect, and most people know that. But one of the challenges with I had a hair like mine because it's so incredibly thick. And when I was wearing my hair long because it was thick, it was really heavy. And, and my hair straight and coarse. So I would dye my hair black. And I, I kind of looked like, you know, a bad Elvis Presley impersonator whenever I dyed my hair because it was just like black, black. You know what I mean? But my hair really was platinum, silver, like chrome. It was the real color of my hair, but I would dye it. And then I would dye it, you know, like on a, on a Saturday night, for example, I'd have somebody come over and dye my hair for me. By Wednesday, because my hair was so heavy and thick, it would start parting down the middle again, and you'd start to see those platinum chrome roots of mine. I look like Pepe Le Pew, the fucking cartoon skunk, when my hair would start getting long. So I, I said, fuck it. I just want to shave my head. I'm tired of this. Is great of a head of hair as I have. And I know, you know, women dig it. Men admire it. You know, I get it. it, it it's, it's a burden to have a an incredible head of hair like I had, but I couldn't wait to shave it off. So the idea of shaving my head was my idea. I was so happy. I just, I was so happy not to have to dye my hair again. And I didn't dye my hair again. I don't think until no, maybe I did. I might've dyed it again for some, for some fucked up reason, but yeah. To show up on raw for sure. Well, and I didn't want to do that. That was Stephanie's idea. I, I, I called Stephanie and, I thought out of courtesy, you know, I'm going to try to do this right. You know, it's going to be a big move. You know, what do they expect? I said, Stephanie, you know, my hair's, you know, chrome. It's not 
not gray. It's not white. It's kind of a chrome color. It looks like the hubcap of a 63 Chevy. Do you want me to dye it and come back with that black, you know, easy E hair? Or do you want me to come in all natural? And she said, no, you should dye it. I went, oh, fuck. I had to dye it again. But then I got it. But then I worked myself into a head shaving ankle with Vince McMahon or Eugene or whoever it was. And uh, got my head shaved again. So it was awesome. And now I walk the streets with, with, with chrome hair. Did you, uh, speaking, <laughs> speaking of poop, let's, let's talk about Bill Goldberg and Scott Hall in a ladder match. Now, usually when you have a ladder match, there is a, a championship title suspended from the ceiling. Occasionally there will be a briefcase with a championship match contract inside the briefcase. Every now and again, we put other stuff here or, or Vince Russo's booking it. Judy Bagwell's panties on a pole. I think it was actually Judy Bagwell on a forklift, but he did have Viagra on a pole once. Ah, okay. But here we've got a stun gun. Now you may remember at the prior pay-per-view Goldberg's street came to an end because Scott Hall hit him with a stun gun and he dropped the world title to Kevin Nash as a result. Now here, they're going to do an angle on this show where we go inside Goldberg's dressing room and he's on the floor writhing in pain, the victim of the deadly unseen attack. So then Goldberg comes out wearing a big knee brace, limping very badly. And most of the match, Scott Hall's working over Goldberg's knee and Goldberg is doing a really good job selling the knee. Meltzer would even say, really, this was his best performance from a dramatic standpoint to date, limping like a big monster with his head covered in blood, which I'm told was hard way. Although the timing and dramatic effect of this blood certainly fit perfectly in the match. With the fans knowing to not give up because he's going to make a comeback. In fact, this is actually some of the best drama WCW has done in a long time. Hall brought in the ladder and tried to be Shawn Michaels, but there's only one. Hall was good for the most part, including an elbow drop off the ladder. And this ladder match blew away the one last week on ECW show. Although a lot of that is because Goldberg is so much more over than Tommy Dreamer. Hall took bumps off the ladder, once catching his throat on the top rope, another time attempting to crotch himself as the ladder tumbled over. And Goldberg was about to get the stun gun, but fucking Disco Inferno knocks over the ladder and he catches his throat on the top rope. Hall gets the stun gun instead, and Goldberg blocks him twice, gives him the sidekick. The stun gun hits the floor, and Goldberg gets it, and he zaps Disco. And then Goldberg throws the stun gun in the air like a ref on a jump ball. And as Hall tried to catch it, Goldberg spears him, then jackhammers him and then zaps him for the win. And then uh, Bigelow runs in Goldberg starts sprawling with him. That gives Hall a chance to get the stick. He zaps both Goldberg and Bigelow and leaves them both land. Meltzer would say aside from the post-match, this was really well done. While it set up a three-way on TV, Goldberg's mission, which is WCW's best chance this year for a hot program is to go through the wolf pack one by one until getting to Hogan. And while there is time for someone losing to get his heat back after the match, this wasn't the time nor the place for that to happen because the big money is to use this match to build the bigger money program, not have this be that program three and a half stars. This is interesting because not too terribly long ago on the WWE network, Steve Austin sat down with Goldberg. And Goldberg had nothing, and I mean nothing nice to say about Scott Hall at all. 
what was the real life situation with them like in this era? It was tense, but you know, I don't, I don't recall it being any kind of like big issue. They worked together. They would tolerate each other backstage. Look, Scott was at this point, Scott was probably, um, as bad as he had ever been when it came to his personal issues with drugs and alcohol, he was miserable to be around a lot of the time. And, and Goldberg wasn't the only one that had an issue with him. And I, and I say that, you know, anybody that's been listening to me on the show knows that I have nothing but a ton of respect for Scott Hall today. I, I really admire Scott. I, I support him as, as best I can. I love seeing him out on the road. I love being around him. I love doing, you know, shots with him because he's just, he's a very positive guy. That's grateful for the opportunity to be where he's at today. That being said, he could, he was a real dick back then. You know, he, when he was under the influence and his life was a wreck, he was tough to be around. So Bill wasn't the only guy that, that had a problem with him. You know, I, I'm not sure if Bill still harbors those issues. I would doubt that he does. But it, it was tough. It was tough for anybody to be around. So it was tough for people that love Scott to be around Scott at that time. Kevin Nash had issues being around him at that time. You know, it was not it was not a pleasant time in Scott Hall's life. And therefore, anybody that was in close proximity to Scott was pretty miserable when he was around. So I can understand it. What do you think of this match? The stun gun on a pole um, or the, the, the ladder match for a stun gun and then Bigelow and disco. And what do you think? I'll be honest. You know, I had forgotten all about it. And then as you know, I'm watching this show to, to prepare, prepare for this show. Um, I saw that it was coming. I went, Oh God, what a horrible idea that was bill Goldberg in a ladder match. Um, but it made sense and it was a really fun match to watch, but in typical WCW fashion, and I'm, I'm criticizing myself here because I was in charge in 1999 and I could have and should have, uh, required, uh, more out of finishes than I did. It's one of my, you know, one of the things I regret the most WCW sucked at finishes. We just sucked. We, it was always that outside interference or a small package or roll of quarters. It was always, you know, bumping the refs to death. You know, we, we never really came up with really creative ways of finishing what would otherwise be a fantastic match. And this is another example. Had someone who had a little more creativity or, and or experience and or commitment or all of the above would have been laying out these finishes and more effort, as much effort would have been put into the finish as was put into laying out the match. This could have gone down as, you know, one of Goldberg's best matches, but as it was with the outside interference and disco and bam, 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 bam it just, eh, I think it took away from the match, the match itself, the body of the match, I found to be very entertaining. The finish killed it for me. We should mention, since we talked about Scott Hall earlier, that, Wade Keller wrote about Scott here. He says, Alan Sharp's job in WCW public relations is to put a positive spin on things. But in USA today, earlier this month, responding to Dana Hall's charges regarding Scott, he took that spin control to a new level. He said, since Scott has returned, he's been a professional and performed his job for WCW. Like he should, the man has a right to make a living. 
He's conducted himself well with us. We can't just ask him to leave. Believe me, if he came to one of our tapings and we felt like he was under the influence, then yeah, we would have a problem. It's sad to see that, you know, he, uh, was deep in the, in the middle of personal stuff with his wife and maybe some substance stuff too, some quote unquote demons, as they like to say in wrestling, but it is a happy ending. I mean, he's kicked out and he's, uh, he's nothing like the person that we read about 20 years ago. Not today. Anyway, he's really not in it. Uh, and I'm, well, again, I don't want to make this about the Scott Hall show, but he is, he's truly, and I look, I'm guessing I don't talk to Scott about this. I don't really see him all that often, but when I do see him, we spend quite a bit of time together. And I think Scott will be the first one to tell you he's still struggling. He's still, he'll fall down occasionally, but he's, he's right. You know, more often than he's not. And I think that's based on where he came from and the issues that he's had to deal with in his life. I'm not going to go into them here. If you know, you know, if you don't, it doesn't matter, but I think he's overcome it and he's, he's struggling every day and, and, and winning more, more often than not. I'm, very proud of him. Well, I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking more about Scott in the future. Let's talk about sold out here though. The wrestling observer reader poll, uh, gave this one 48.7% thumbs up 39 and a half percent thumbs down 11.8% thumbs in the middle. Where do you fall on this one? Eric watching it back for the first time. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Give it a marginal thumbs up. I'm going to go thumbs in the middle for me. The best match, everyone agreed it was unanimous. It was Mysterio, Guerrero, Kidman, and Psychosis. Go out of your way to watch it. The worst match, 61 votes for Dave Finley and Van Hammer, uh, 10 votes for the Flares versus Wyndham and Kurt. Uh, so, an interesting, uh, an interesting time in WCW history for sure. I mean, stun gun, ladder match, that's. Feels like a fever dream. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a weird, and I don't mean to interrupt you, brother, but I think one of the reasons I'm giving this one a marginal thumbs up is, it, you know, like from a macro perspective, looking down at it, if as my one-time associate Jeff Pollock said, the end hangs on the beginning. If you go back and look at the very open of the show, and it's Ric Flair in what appears to be you know, a State of the Union address you know, with the president of WCW logo behind him. And he's giving a, what, what comes off as a very political speech about how he's back in control and WCW is back and all is, you know, right with the world and thanking the fans for his support and all of that. And then you come and then you look at the end of the show, which is totally the opposite. This is about NWO, you know, fighting their side of the fight to kind of take back control and, and pull the legs out from underneath Ric Flair. So that's what the overall arc of this pay-per-view really was trying to present. And I think it did so effectively. If you look at it on a match by match by batch basis, then yeah, it was kind of average, so to speak. But I think the, you know, as, as, as this pay-per-view fit within the overall arc of what we were trying to achieve at that time, um, I, I gave it a thumbs, marginal thumbs up. Well, we hope you guys gave us more than a thumbs up this week, but if not, we'll be back next week and we're doing something we've never done before. We're going to watch sting debut on raw. Now, of course, a lot of you think, wait a minute, what, what does that have to do? Eric Bischoff is, is the guy behind the guy in WCW and sting was the guy in WCW. And it was a big deal when he finally made his way to the other side, the world wrestling federation, or by this point, WWE. 
It happened on January 19th, 2015. So join us one day after the five-year anniversary next week, right here on 83 weeks, where we're actually going to do a watch along version of this show. And I'm just going to talk about Sting making the debut because Eric wasn't there. He can't comment on it, but he can watch it for the very first time. It went down in Dallas, Texas, and it was a bit of a reunion episode, a very interesting show to say the least. The actual matches are Bray Wyatt and Daniel Bryan, Dean Ambrose and bad news Barrett. New Day taking on the Brass Ring Club, which was Tyson Kidd and Cesaro. We've also got Natalia and Paige taking on Alicia Fox and Summer Rae, Rusev and Our Truth, Jay Uso and The Miz, and then John Cena, Seth Rollins, Big Show, Kane, Stephanie. Lord, everybody's in here. Um, the debut of Sting, though, for the WWE. Did you ever think you would see this happen? No. No, I, I, I didn't know. I was happy when it did. You know, I was happy for Steve Singh um, when it did. But no, I never thought it would. I, I never, never thought it would happen. You also see appearances from the APA, the NWO, DX. Uh, we've got uh, Hulk Hogan here, Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair. It's a star-studded affair. And then, of course, we see Sting out here uh, setting up his match with Triple H just in time for WrestleMania. Something totally different next week here on 83 weeks. The following week, we're going to revisit clash of the champions 30 back in 1995 in Las Vegas, but here's something you don't have to gamble with your Valentine's day present. You need to go to, I hate right now. Get fast and free shipping, a lifetime guarantee, unbeatable customer service, and a brand new look with Steven singers, rose gold, rose collection. It's only 69 bucks. It's deeply dipped in rose gold. You're going to love it. It's a long stem American beauty rose. We've seen them in every color in my house. Rose gold's coming to my house this Valentine's day. And it should yours as well. It is a 24 karat gold dipped rose for Valentine's day with free shipping only at I hate Steven singer.com until next week. He is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.